Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing the huge amounts of cash thrown at the NHS this week against the Whitehall spending wars. Plus, the EU withdrawal bills are over, but what's happening for the UK's negotiating position with Brussels? I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, our political editor, Deputy Opinion Editor Miranda Green, Pharmaceuticals Editor Sarah Neville and Whitehall Editor James Blitz. Thank you all for joining. And if you enjoy this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. It was a big week for the National Health Service. On Monday, Theresa May announced that she'd be giving a big cash bonus to celebrate its 70th anniversary. This was about £20 billion a year, or a 3.4% increase. It might all sound like a lot of money, but in fact, it's below the historical average. Is this going to make a substantial difference to the health service? And what does this mean for the other battles within Whitehall for spending? Sarah Neville, let's begin. You wrote a fantastic essay for last weekend's paper about the health service and the challenges facing the NHS, and you made the very good point that it's not just all about money. Let's begin with the money question. What did you make of the announcement? Was it a good thing and was it enough? I think the first thing to say is that the NHS would have been in very considerable trouble without the new money that's been announced. But all of that said, it just about barely reaches the level of increase that a number of independent experts had said would be necessary for the NHS simply to tread water. It doesn't appear to give any real scope for actual improvements in the service. As you said, Seb, it was a 3.4% increase, but that was only in the budget for NHS England, the organisation that runs the health service in England. It didn't include the wider health and social care department. It excluded really important areas like capital spending, preventive health and training. With all those areas excluded, as an actual percentage rise for the whole department, the whole kit and caboodle, it was only 2.9%. So that really does fall below the minimum that the experts felt was needed. And they essentially said that if this money isn't given, then essentially the winter crises that we get would become a permanent thing. And this is partly because the health service has seen increases in spending throughout the years of austerity, but at very low levels. And of course, there's the ageing population and the ongoing social care crisis. If you take into account the ageing and the growing of the population, there is analysis to suggest that even while the health service was technically being protected, with very small above inflation increases during the eight years of maximum austerity, it actually did amount to a cut. My colleague Kate Allen and I wrote a piece a a year or so ago that declared permanent winter in the National Health Service. The strains that now used to be limited only to the cold months, allowing the service to recover and clear some of the backlog of non-urgent operations at the rest of the year, that slack no longer exists in the system. 
So Miranda Green, let's look at the politics of this announcement. It's been rumoured for quite a few months now that was going to be a big cash announcement for the NHS. A lot of backwards and forwards between the Treasury and Downing Street, the Department for Health, with rumours that Jeremy Hunt, the Health Secretary, threatened to resign unless he got enough money for the health service. Philip Hammond being very unhappy because, well, there's still not a lot of money going around. All at the same time with the backdrop of that big Brexit bus, which came very close to saying if you vote to leave the EU, there'll be an extra £350 million a week. And in fact, it's actually going to get more than that. It's really fascinating, actually, because there was a genuine feeling that the government had to do something quite fast and quite dramatic on health spending for these two political reasons. One, as you've said... You cannot be the government who is in charge of enacting Brexit and not honour the implied promise that was made in the Brexit campaign by the Leavers, some of whom are now the most senior people in the Cabinet, to inject a lot more money in the NHS. And that's why you've had these slightly ridiculous statements this week from Mrs May herself and others in the government saying that it's the Brexit dividend going to the NHS. Now, we could spend loads of time unpicking why that is not the case, but let's just accept that it was kind of necessary for them politically to pretend it's the Brexit. Brexit dividend. And secondly, because the Conservative Party just is always behind on what the public thinks about who would best look after the NHS, which remains something akin to a national religion. And so to catch up, they're very worried that at the next election, there will just be a kind of inevitable wipeout. They've got to try and get on the front foot on health. And that's why Jeremy Hunt has been playing such hardball over it. One Conservative minister said to me, if we don't do this, the next election will become a referendum on the NHS and we will lose the that because as you said Labour consistently always does better and is always trusted it always goes back to the very original point the Conservatives didn't vote to found the NHS Sarah so when they're trying to make arguments about this they are simply less trusted than the public do you think this is going to go far enough because again as I said in that excellent piece you wrote about where the health service is this money is going to come with demands for reforms and efficiencies and to my understanding it actually looks like it's going to unpick a lot of what the Conservatives did during the Lansley reforms of the 20 Yes, one of the rather strange things that's happening a little below the radar even now is that a number of fascinating and very much needed exercises in having different parts of the health system collaborate together so that the boundaries between hospitals, general practice, primary care in other words, and community care are becoming much more porous. But strictly, these totally sanctioned experiments are actually contravening the current legislation, which requires competition rather than collaboration. In the NHS, they love to use this word workaround. It's used tellingly often, I think. And what they're doing is employing workarounds to alter on the ground the way the health service is working. But in a way, I think the sort of legislation that NHS leaders would like to see would be a sort of bottom-up recognition that this is happening and the law needs to change to authorise this, as it were, so that it no longer has to be done sort of outside the law. One thing I wanted to mention about both Jeremy Hunt and Simon Stevens is I don't think you can underestimate just how far Theresa May has moved in the last few months. Simon Stevens, who runs the NHS in England, made a rather political speech back in November, very forcefully reminding ministers that this promise had been made during the Brexit referendum campaign and that it underlined how much the British people wanted more spending on the NHS. Now, at the time, that really ruffled a lot of feathers at number 10 and in the Treasury. But here, six or seven months later, Theresa May has named health as her number one spending priority. And I think that's a signal achievement both for Simon Stevens and for Jeremy Hunt, of course.
in a weird way, she is now, after the battle that Sarah's described, carrying out what David Cameron tried to do as well. Part of his modernisation project and detoxifying of the Tory brand was that famous speech where he said, Tony Blair said three words, education, 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 letters, NHS, partly to do with his own experience of his very sick son in the system, but also because he just realised, as all good politicians must do, that your priorities have to be the priorities of your electorate. There is a serious question on the money, though, and Sarah's excellent piece encapsulated this with, I think your phrase was, Sarah, that the NHS has become the safety net for the safety net, because actually as the whole welfare state has experienced serious cutbacks since 2010... The only people there picking up the pieces are the hospital system, really. And so unless the financial settlement and all the questions about public sector reform are taken holistically, we are always going to be disappointed by what the NHS can cope with. Because social care is the really sort of enormous elephant in the room. We've got a consultative paper that is supposedly under preparation. Coming later this year, so Coming I hear. Coming later this year. It already slipped quite a lot. Their hope of bringing it out before the summer parliamentary recess starts in July. That's now gone. They're struggling to find a solution. We clearly need some kind of rubric about what the relative responsibilities between the state and the individual are when it comes to providing for their social care in old age. That's proved immensely politically contentious for so many years, which is why successive administrations have ducked implementing a solution. But as Miranda says, if we can't sort the social care crisis, then the NHS will have to go on picking up the pieces and the strain is becoming increasingly unsustainable for the health service. One consequence of turning on the taps for the Department for Health, Miranda, has been everybody else now coming with their bowl asking for some money. There was a very striking story in the FT this week about defence. So Gavin Williamson, who's the very tiggerish defence secretary who's looking to get more money for his department and promote his role. It turned out there was an exchange between him and Downing Street where Theresa May had said, does the UK still need to be a tier one military power? And there's a lot of debate on whether this is even a thing, but essentially it's a full military, full spectrum range of military options from the nuclear deterrent to cyber warfare to troops and what have you. I think it created quite a lot of shock when this story came out. I think people in the MOD in particular were very surprised at this because a few months ago, Theresa May had said defence is a priority and I am going to give extra money for Trident, for other different areas. But it does just show floodgates have now been opened and we'll be hearing from the housing department, the education department. Everybody's now going to want more money. And the simple fact is, there still isn't a lot of money there unless we start borrowing more or jacking up taxes. It's an extremely complex set of problems, one should say, for the government to try and solve now. If you've got a Chancellor who, in the run-up to his last budget, started to give interviews where he talked about light at the end of the tunnel, you raise expectations all over the place. Then you give out this NHS settlement, which looks dramatic, and you have a queue of ministers at your door saying, well, here's our wish list as well. I think that it's very interesting, the fact that Mrs May should have said that the MOD has to justify its ambitions in this way. She may have just been doing a little bit of slight slapping down of Gavin Williamson, who is clearly a very ambitious man who would like to see himself close to her job, if not in it himself. But also they do have to keep a rein on what departments will be asking for. It's very unfortunate in the run up to all sorts of things, not least the confrontation that's going on between Donald Trump and the rest of NATO about which nations are really stumping up the cash to play a proper role in that very important military alliance. And Britain's sense of itself is very caught up with its armed services as well. Obviously, for the Conservative Party's brand, it's crucial. So it's unfortunate for Mrs May that this was leaked, I think. 
we do have this question as well about where Britain is going to focus this on defence and it's on healthcare spending as well that clearly we can't do everything and the overall spending envelope of the public sector is not going to radically change so essentially it's about making choice whether it's on healthcare whether it's on defence and really Theresa May as we've discussed many times before Miranda is not great at making choices her modus operandi is to kind of hit the can down the road as we all know on something like defense spending it's quite a simple question in a way we can't go back to the 1980s where we could mount a kind of solo war like in the Falkland Islands and we do as you've quite rightly said have to think about how the UK can play a role militarily in the future with a new set of challenges not least sort of cyber warfare where we appear to have some strength but you have to be really careful if you're a conservative leader and a conservative prime minister to not sound as if you're talking down as it were in that famous phrase, one of the key strengths of the country and which matters to people in their sense of themselves. And finally, Sarah, I have one last question for you, which is, I can remember Simon Stevens telling George Osborne, I need £8 billion to keep the health service going. Give me that and I'll leave you alone. Then we had Simon Stevens saying this time, give me 3% and I'll leave you alone. Am I being a bit cynical by saying that in a few years time, we might be right back where we've started on this? Sadly, there's a fairly good chance of that. But one thing to say in Simon Stevens' defence is that that original bid that he made for the £8 billion was on the condition that there were no further cuts in social care and that the preventative public health budget was also secured. He believed, rightly in my view, that both those preconditions were needed for that money to be sufficient. And I think he can quite reasonably turn around and say that those conditions were not satisfied. All of that said, I think the service needs to move far faster on reform. I think it needs to do far more to standardise best practice, to cut waste out of the system, to get away from this situation that has got better but still prevails to some degree where individual commissioning groups are making their own purchasing decisions. All of these things need to change. To the House of Commons, where it was another week with another vote on a meaningful vote. For the second time in a fortnight, Conservative rebels threatened to go against the government on whether they will have a proper say on Theresa May's Brexit deal before they step back from the edge. We'll ultimately find out later this year whether the rebellion that didn't turn into anything this week meant anything. Meanwhile, not much progress has been made on the UK's negotiating position, with next week's Brussels summit looking like something of a washout. George Parker, let's talk again for a bit of history repeating about the meaningful votes. So <laughs> after two weeks ago, they had they were bought off with compromises from Theresa May. The rebels felt they were betrayed. They then said, that's it. We're going to vote for this. We're going to get it through and we're going to show the government. Didn't quite pan out like that, though. No, it was a bit of a fizzle. The rebellion fizzled out a bit at the end, didn't it? And uh, I think basically there was a war of attrition over a couple of weeks, as you were just describing, where there were... Various um, pressure was put on the um, on the potential rebels. They were there were vague threats of deselection. There was obviously quite a hostile social media campaign. Um, I think there was also a growing sense on both sides of the party actually that this row had escalated to a point where it posed a serious risk to the credibility and authority of the prime minister and the and the government. And there was a very important meeting held in the Whip's office, convened by Oliver Letwin, who used to be David Cameron's troubleshooter where he basically sort of knocked their heads together and said, look, we've got to try and find a way of de-escalating this. And in the end, uh, the rebels caved. Dominic Grieve, the chief rebel, 
basically ended up voting against his own amendments. Um, and that has to be counted as a success by the Prime Minister. So essentially what they've now been bought off with is that the vote the House of Commons will have on any Brexit deal later this year um, may or may not be amendable. And the reason this matters is because MPs want to have the ability to direct the government if there isn't a Brexit deal to say extend Article 50, which some have been talking about this week, or go back to the negotiating table. And very cleverly, the government have put this in the hands of Speaker John Burko, who I'm sure is delighted to have to make the decision on whether this amendment would be, uh, whether this vote would be amendable. Yes, that's right. Well, my, my colleague James, who you'll be hearing from in a second, um, was speaking to a parliamentary expert this week who was basically saying that the Speaker's room for manoeuvre on this is very limited. And in fact, it would be very hard for him to allow it to be amendable. And so in the purest interpretation of what's happened is that the government, in the event of a no-deal scenario playing out in 2019, a minister will come to the House of Commons, will make a statement, and then the House of Commons will vote to take note on the statement. And this position was lampooned by Hilary Benn, the shadow Brexit secretary, saying, what will his children say in generation, you know, in years to come? What did you do, Dad, when the country was faced with this cliff edge? Oh, we had a vote in the House of Commons to take note. Now, I think, in the end... This is all slightly academic because in the end, the House of Commons can find ways of asserting its will and having its say. And basically, if Theresa May ignored a vote in the House of Commons on whatever motion it was on, uh, she would be basically walking into into an early election. Yes, that's broadly right. I think... um... It has been a rather academic debate in a way. Having, having written reams on it like you, George, that seems an unfortunate thing to say. But the truth is this. If Mrs May comes back from Brussels, she puts her deal to the Commons and it is voted down, we will have a full-scale government crisis. Uh, and in those circumstances, I think nothing really is predictable. And the ability of MPs to basically petition for some kind of legislation or move that would move things away from no deal is there even in the very short space of time after January the 21st. So in that sense, I'm not sure it is a big climb down. There are still bigger issues that come along in some ways. And one of them, I think, is what's going to happen when the trade and customs bills come to the Commons before the middle of July. And, and, and because there you do have a substantive motion on the UK staying in a customs union. And that is still, I think, a big challenge. That was the question I was going to come on to next, because it does really seem the whole past couple of weeks has been somewhat pointless. Because I think I agree with the sentiments of people like Tom Tuckenhead MP who have said the House of Commons will assert itself. It will find a way. And so how Having this written into law seems a bit odd, but it really has been about a showing of numbers and of the strength. And clearly, uh, the May government was worried enough of losing that it had to find compromises. So it could not be sure of winning those votes. When that customs bill does come up, how do you feel about the numbers on that, James? Do you think they've got a chance of winning and defeating the government? Or will there be more compromises and our favourite exercise of just kicking that can ever further down the road? Well, I think it's, it's a good question, but it's a different difficult question to answer because I think that that vote is going to come at the end of two uh, after two other events which will come in the way the first is the June European Council at the end of next week where admittedly not much is going to happen on Brexit that there's going to continue to be deadlock over the island question but then you will have the Chequers summit and the publication of a white paper and I would be surprised and George will correct me here if I'm wrong but I'd be surprised if they came to these key votes before they had got the white paper out and made clear what their position is going to be on the long-term customs and trading arrangement. Because I would imagine, there's no briefing that I've had on it, but I would imagine that the way they want to see off any kind of rebellion there is by setting out a position which it would be difficult for pro-Europeans to go against. 
Well, that certainly seems right to me, George. That you know, Conservative MPs have said to me, "Well, we can't vote on a customs union if we don't know what the government's preferred customs option is." They do have to clarify and get that out there. Let's just talk about those two events James mentions. The first immediate one is another uh, EU Council summit coming about this time next week, and this was hoped to be a period where more progress would be made. Michel Barnier, the EU's negotiator in particular, has been saying progress must be made at this summit if there's going to be a deal in time. Other people like David Davis, who's uh, notionally the UK's chief negotiator, he has said, well, actually, October is when lots of progress is going to be made. What's your feeling for it? Yes, I think, the um, as James said, I think the summit is going to be a damp squib as far as uh, Brexit's concerned. It will probably be one of those discussions which comes up over the coffees or the amuse-bouche or the putty forum will be dispensed with fairly quickly because the EU's got greater problems on its place at the moment, migration, eurozone reform, trade wars with America. So I think Brexit will become a bit of an afterthought. And frankly, that's because the EU is still waiting for the British government to decide what it wants. The negotiations are stalled. So really, that moves on to the following week, um, this Chequers summit that we've been talking about, which is really the big moment, I think, where the government has to choose and uh, what sort of Brexit it wants. And I think everything else flows from that Chequers summit. I'm told the meeting in Chequers will be uh, either a day or a day and a half. And not everything will be settled at the summit. The whole cabinet will be there. But there will be further negotiations after the Chequers summit with a view to producing the white paper, as James said, the week after and before, crucially, these big votes in the House of Commons on on the customs union. Do you think it genuinely will be settled, though? You know, we've sat around this table (laughs) so many times and said, this is the crunch vote, this is the crunch paper, this is when it's going to matter, and it always gets pushed into the future. Well, you're right. You've got to be sceptical about these things. Um, But look, time time is running out. We're, We're almost into July. The House of Commons breaks up for its summer recess, I think, around about 19th or 20th of July. And then by the time we come back, we're into the conference season and then we're into this crucial October summit. If the British government doesn't know what it wants from Brexit and bearing in mind we're just hitting the second anniversary of the vote to leave the EU, if it can't make its mind at this at this juncture after a big cabinet session, um, certainly the white paper has been bigged up by number 10. They're absolutely confident it will be delivered. It won't be the final word, of course, because we, this still doesn't allow for the fact the EU might just throw it back in our face. But nevertheless, in terms of the British government being set out in a fairly detailed way, I think we can expect that to happen. So, James, let's just talk about where the debate is going at the moment. The, the cabinet is still mulling over these two customs options, the MaxFAC option, the new customs partnership. It's also proposed a new backstop, which is essentially keeping the whole of the UK uh, aligned to the EU for customs arrangements. That's the last things we've heard, but we've also started to hear more about the idea of the UK in some form staying in the single market market for goods. This was first talked about by Sir Ivan Rogers, who's a former diplomat in Brussels for the UK, but it's also been talked about by Charles Grant, um, who wrote in an FT op-ed this week, that this is under active consideration in government, and this is where the debate heads to next. Explain what it would mean. Well, basically, at present, Mrs May has in the backstop anyway, which is the insurance policy to guarantee an invisible border between Northern Ireland and the Republic. She's basically made a commitment of the UK completely staying in a customs union. Now, that goes some way towards dealing with the Northern Ireland problem, but actually only about 30% of the traffic across that border is dealt with by the customs union. If we're going to have a properly invisible border, Mrs May has to make a commitment to keeping the UK in the single market for goods. In other words, regulatorily aligned in terms of goods so that you have complete freedom of of flow of goods across that border. Now, I think there's 
as you say, a lot of indications. I think you saw it in the latter half of Ivan Rogers' speech at Glasgow, an important speech. You've seen it also in an op-ed by Charles Grant, a well-informed op-ed in the FT by Charles Grant this week, basically saying that this is the kind of line that Mrs May wants to go down. Um, this is really important. It's very painful for the Brexiters in the Cabinet, for Boris Johnson, for Liam Fox, for David Davis. Um, there are some questions about whether Michael Gove would back this or not. But the point is that if Mrs May does go down that road, either in the backstop or in the wider trade arrangement, uh, it's going to be very reassuring for British business, in particular for manufacturing industry, because they're really worried about this friction. We've seen the concerns about Airbus coming out over the possibility of them moving out. So after everything else... This is the big question. The parliamentary shenanigans are actually on a slightly lower tier, I think. I think it's this question of what happens at Chequers on that. George will know more about this, though. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the single market question is is really the big outstanding outstanding question here. And I think we are basically going down the route that people like Ivan Rogers and Charles Grant have been setting out. You end up with a quite a close single market style, although two of them may won't call it a single market, a single market style deal if we can secure it with Brussels on goods and a much looser arrangement on services. The reason why that might be sellable to the Conservative Party is that you accept that most businesses want to have the same kinds of rules and regulations as the EU to trade with with, um, with the European Union. That's, that's the first thing. The second thing is, if you have a more flexible arrangement on services, where the single market, frankly, is less complete, that means that um, the City of London and other service industries can compete on a slightly more footloose basis. And Liam Fox, the trade secretary, can go around the world trying to get trade deals on services. So you can sell it potentially to uh, a sceptical Conservative Party. What's in it for the EU? Well, of course, as we've often discussed before, the EU has a massive trade surplus on goods and a massive trade deficit on services. So the deal could be in their interest as well. But again, those compromises feel like a pretty big pill for the Brexiters to swallow. It would certainly explain the NHS cash announcement we were talking about earlier in the podcast. Here's something to save face. But by the way, you're going to have to accept ECJ oversight. You're going to have to accept signing up to all the rules from Brussels for now in the future on goods. And crucially, it comes to what I think is the real and the only true red line in this process, which is migration free movement of people. Because so far, that's not been on the negotiating table. Apart from during the transition where we've agreed to stand still, but for the future relationship, it does feel as if the UK can't really compromise on that. But the U- Brussels may very well say, well, if you want access to full access to the single market, then you've got to have full free movement of people. And that feels like a pretty problematic thing um, to look towards. It's, well, it's hugely problematic. And as you say, single market in goods, however you describe it or whatever label you put on it, will involve some kind of ECJ oversight. And then the question of free movement arises. The EU will say the four freedoms are indivisible, um, therefore you have to have free movement. And then in the end, what will happen is what I've always thought would happen is that the British government will then say, how much money do you want to let us opt out of free movement? And we all know the EU is um, strapped for cash at the moment. They need money to pay for the next seven-year financial framework. So the big question is how much, what is the price the EU will try to extract from the UK to get that sort of opt-out, if you like, on free movement. We should note as well that I think nearly every Brexiter, senior Brexiter has said consistently we will never pay for market access, uh, which may get challenged. But the, the ultimate challenge of this proposal, James, is will the EU even accept it? And people like Charles and Ivan who talked about this say that they hate Switzerland's arrangement, which is often used as an example because there's no ECJ oversight for Switzerland and it doesn't fit within the, the boundaries, the framework of what the EU is meant to have and they're not 
well versed to give the UK something that is so unique. Because if the UK does get this with restricted movement of people, it's quite a big win for Theresa May actually, because it is a bespoke deal that nobody thought she would get. But how, what are the chances of that actually happening? Do you think? Well, you ask about the EU side of things. I mean, you're absolutely right. It is a huge challenge for the EU, and if you listen to Barnier, they're clearly nowhere near it at the moment. Over time, I think the issues for the EU are these. First of all, um, a, a, a level playing field in goods is good for the EU because they have a surplus in, in goods. So from their perspective, it's absolutely excellent. The, the, the British have their strength in services. They have their strength in goods exports. So that's good for their companies. Secondly, I do think this is the only way to deal with the Northern Ireland backstop at the end of the day. I can't see any other way of, of dealing with it. Uh, you have got to allow some kind of single market arrangement involving either Northern Ireland or the whole of the UK. So that's the thing. I think you've got to bring into play a third factor as well, which is that from the perspective of France and Germany, they're having to keep their eyes more and more on Trump. I mean, they are engaged now in a full-scale trade war effectively with the US. There are so many differences on a wide range of policy, Iran, Israel, Palestine, climate change, and so on. And I think from the European perspective, they've got to ask themselves the question, well, we're into a kind of conflict with, you know, the main English speaking language country in the world. Do we want to be in conflict as well with the second biggest English speaking language in the world? And so from their perspective, from this perspective of the European leaders, I think they, they may well feel, look, let's just try and deal with this thing. And, and we need allies. Let's, let's get back there and, and, and try and ally ourselves with the British. And that, I think, is part of, of the incentive uh, to do something. Uh, Ivan Rogers, in his appearance at the FTKPMG conference, where he was interviewed by George, did leave open the possibility of some kind of deal being done which allows a restriction of free movement. He was basically saying, well, look, if the British are outside the service as part of the single market, well, maybe you could also say that you could have some qualification of free movement to deal with that. He felt there was some artistry the Europeans could do. But I'm not denying it's going to be difficult. And whether it can be done is right now looks very, very difficult. And finally, last quick question, George. If Theresa May does go down this route and this becomes UK's position, what are those hardline Eurosceptics in the Conservative Party going to think about this? Because if I was in their shoes, it sounds like another fudge, another compromise and another step away from that clean break with the bloc that they so desperately want. Well, that's true. And um, a lot of them looked at the events of this week, um, particularly the NHS announcement, the Brexit dividend. And they thought, well, that's great. Thanks very much, Theresa May, for calling it the Brexit dividend. But they smelled a rat. And what they and they're, they're right to think that because actually there's going to be some very difficult stuff coming their way which they're going to be asked to swallow. What do they do if they don't like it? Well, if we come back to the age-old question: Are they going to try and to unseat Theresa May? Are we going to see mass cabinet resignations, or are we going to see which? Going back to the start of our conversation, we often see when we talk about these confrontations, both sides ultimately backing down. And that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to George, James, Miranda and Sarah for joining us. We'll be back next Saturday for another episode. If you like FT Politics or if you don't, then we'd like to hear from you. We're doing a survey of all Financial Times podcasts to see what you think. Click on the link in the show notes to fill in our form and be in chance of winning an exciting prize. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Molly Mintz. Until next time, thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.